Hello and welcome to Mad Hatter's Tea Party. This is Lyle Hatta, and today I'm interviewing Oliver Clegg. This is his first show at Larry Shabibi here in Al Sarkal Avenue. It's on from the 13th of November till the 5th of January, and the show is called Everything Should Be Okay. Hello, Oliver. Hello. So you, this is the first time in the UAE? This is my first time in Dubai and my first time in the UAE. Yep. Is, is this the first time in an Arab country? Um, I think I've passed through airports, but I've never, you know, s- stepped into an actual uh, urban environment okay. or the well, desert. Well, welcome to our town, and I uh, hope your first show went well. Yes, I think uh, everything should be okay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, a little bit to the, to the listeners, what, what kind of your work is... What we have here is a lot of wood and a lot of painting on wood, but your your enterprise in general kind of varies, but is based on that, correct? Yes, I mean, I think um, this is often a question that people... Well, a question that people often ask you when you're an artist is, what do you do? I think my initial reaction is always to say that I'm a painter, okay. and that's for various different reasons. Fundamentally, because I studied specifically as a painter... When I was 19 and 22, I lived in Italy, uh, studying particularly like portraiture in oil. And then when I did my master's age 26, um, I, I focused on painting for the, the duration of, uh, of, the, of the course, as it were. But what seems to have happened, and this is something that you know, may or may not come up when we're talking, is you know, relationship my work to different places I've lived. And I think ultimately my, my practice has um, diversified as a result of different contexts and uh, the demand in my work to express things in mediums that, more, that are more than just, you know, uh, painting and oil. So um, I think the show is uh, evocative of this diversity or has, is striving to you know, show the diversity in my practice, although fundamentally there's more paintings than anything else. Okay, what do you think is kind of at least somewhat uh, the, connect, the connecting theme or the connecting idea that you want to keep expressing to, to, to anybody who would listen or see? <laughs> I mean, I think a, a recurring uh, theme in my work... Um, is this is what I feel the relationship of myself and someone born in 1980 uh, age 36 now um, born into what was could perhaps be considered a pre uh, technological era um, and my uh, response to perhaps the changes of uh, of technology and their effects on the way that we conduct our everyday life. So, you know, you look at my paintings, for example, there's this kind of sense of uh, nostalgia, lament um, for something in the, the ne- neglectful presentation of the, you know, the subject matter and the fact that the subject matters themselves um, are these toys often belonging to the, this kind of non-digital generation. You know, the kids who played with these toys at are not the same kids who will be using their iPads and phones and you know laptops to you know engage with their their kind of childhood interests. So I think something that was expressed in the earlier paintings, as a, which is what I'm referring to specifically, 
you know, the, the ne- neglected uh, childhood toys and um, the references to uh, cultural icons that perhaps have become less and less impo- important to, you know, the current uh, uh, generation, such as uh, Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck or whatever, you know, that... Actually, on, on those, if, if, if I may take it to a different direction, maybe, yeah. I, maybe I'm seeing it because I'm more or less the same age bracket but the work that you've had um, or the playing the, 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 the mm-hmm. work based on these toys whether they're mm-hmm. balloons or actual things yeah um, you keep saying that they're it's, it's people things that people have played with in their youth that they won't play now and it's about technology but the way I was seeing it and if I'm now comparing it to the installation work that you also have mm-hmm. or the performance installation piece that you have it's all this engagement so whenever you show the visual or that, it's always about this playing, either before playing or after playing, or whatever we let it go. Yeah, I mean, you know, well, that's you know, that's part of it as well. I think that um, the and this is when we're talking about context and um, w- with regards to my work, it's, it's often very important because I made different works in uh, different stages of my life, and yeah, this is something that we can you know edit or not. But you know, I've had different uh, uh, periods periods when I've just been a young artist in London who's uh, expressing himself and then I've had serious like loss in which my work became very introspective and then I've gone to um, you know to, to New York when I've got through this kind of necessarily grieving period where I isolated myself in the middle of nowhere um, and suddenly I'm, I'm making work that kind of fits into that context and basically what I mean by this is yes there's always a sense of play in my work but whether it's de- depictions of play in the toys or whether it actually becomes you know play as the work I think it's, yeah. that's, that's where I want to kind of highlight that the play that you keep seeing and mentioning I think it's, it's a little well, at least I see it a little bit beyond that I see it as learning mm. so when it's um, when, when it was the toys earlier that are left behind it's somebody who's learning how to do them and then when you learn how to play you learn how to... Like, okay, let's take it first. The wood that you started using was the wood from the drawing classes. Mm. So it's, it's kind of learning how to draw, learning how to be an artist. Mm. But then what you depicted on it was all these toys left behind, so learning how to play, mm. somebody moved on, and then by learning how to play, you technically learn how to be a, an adult, how to be a functioning human in society. Yeah. And then you've taken those further on, and, and you had actual engagements where you're seeing how people... Are le- you're maybe learning how to deal with every single situation you are by seeing how other people deal with it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's, uh, there was a specific point in my life, which was 2008, I did a show at the Freud Museum in London, and when you do a show at an institution such as the Freud Museum, which is specifically, uh, or rather primarily, a museum for Freud and not a necessarily a context for showing contemporary art, yet there is this contemporary art program, the directors of the museum point you towards various um, essays and texts by Freud, Freud in order to kind of give some shape to what you're, what you're doing. And quite often they will choose a specific text and say, we think that you should fit your show around this specific text. But, and quite often it can be an anniversary of a text as well. So with this in mind, when I went to the Freud Museum, I was given this uh, text by Freud that was written, and I, this, I may be wrong, but I think it was 1913 
and it's called Creative Writers in a Daydream. And the important thing about this, this text was not only the, 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 uh, its relationship to what we're talking about now, which I'll explain, but also the fact that it set, my, set me up mentally or in a mindset, I suppose, by, through encouragement of what Freud is, uh, says in his essay for how I've conducted uh, my practice in the eight years that, that kind of followed reading it. And so basically in this text, Freud talks about basically writers but also with reference to artists and, you know, creative individuals that when you're younger, you um, live a f fantasy existence through role-playing. You know, you're pretending to be so-and-so or you're, um, you, you're, you're, you make up situations that aren't real, but you believe in them. And what Freud says is that when you become older and have to succumb to the trivialities of real life, that quite often your role-playing uh, goes out the window, as it were. But his suggestion is that it's artists and writers who continue this fantasy life and continue the play of youth, which I've always kind of... or I, I've always been aware of, and I think that you'll, you'll meet an artist... Um, who's uh, who's 40 years old and a banker who's 40 years old and they'll probably have a very different outlook on life and one of them will be um, perhaps more weathered. <laughs> I don't like to make necessary general co comparisons, but uh, weathered by, by uh, their, the conduct of their life. And I think there is a sense of kind of playfulness to the individual who is striving to make something um, that is essentially perhaps pointless. No, but, but do you see the, the, the learning angle of it at all? I mean, did you ever consider play yeah. as education? Yeah. I suppose that... I mean, this is, again, like... Uh, uh, well, no, well, no, I mean, again, it's like this, this kind of particular point. When I, when I uh, graduated, which was in 2007, a year before the Freud show, anyway, I did a, my thesis on uh, the importance of studio practice, and one of the... Uh, the fundamental uh, points of, 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 of that text, which was, you know, not a huge text, it was 10,000 words or whatever, um, was really about uh, the, the importance of, um, of studio practice and that in just making and just doing which in essence is, is, is playful in its approach. You know, you, you don't have like a prescription of what you, there's, there, there's no kind of f finality, is that, you know, you ultimately are leaving a lot open to chance and by leaving things open to chance, you're able to re realize, um, uh, uh, realize, I, I was going to say solutions, realize um, possibilities that you would have never imagined. And I think, you know, this is, this is, this is where play is always important because in doing something kind of random and accidental, there's a, there's a playfulness. And whether you're considering it as being, oh, this is playfulness like a child, that there's a kind of sense of, of enjoyment that just comes from the accident. So, you know, I, I, it's kind of what, what is your definition of play, I suppose, is, is my question to you. Um, that, that, that's a question. Like, what would your definition of a play be yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, play it, it, on the wider scale, but, but what, when I was talking to you is, is what I've seen through your work is all of these play situations or play objects were the way I saw it in terms of 
an interactive system of, of learning. Yeah. I mean, I think in a way, like, uh, what, what, I, what interests me from what you just said uh, prior to my, my ramble um, <laughs> is this kind of suggestion that in my more performative work, and I think specifically this would be uh, referring to the spinning table with the dinner parties and the uh, foosball tables and the games nights, is that there was a, a lot... Not only was the essence of, of the event playful, in, in the sense that you know you're playing games, you're being competitive, and the table spins, it's playful. But there's a kind of sense of uh, uh, learning for me because I don't know what is going to happen. So there might be a situation. It might be learning from as simple. Uh, uh, sorry, the, the 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 idea of learning simply from someone that you meet that you learn from because they say something, or it might be that you're put in a situation that you can't deal with if you're spinning around and you have to sit next to someone that you wouldn't have necessarily wanted to, that you learn to deal with that situation in that way. I think for me as like the viewer, I'm learning about you know dynamics, and I think that, um, that it's important to... The dynamic of a social situation is is the same as as understanding the relationship uh, within like a, a single canvas and a relationship compositionally. I mean, for I mean, me, you're learning, you're learning about living and yeah, yeah, you're learning about living and, and how life goes. So it is it is a different aspect for it. But now, if you want to go back to the to the paintings that we we're talking about, you had kind of I guess two two at least two phases that we saw. One of them were all those marionette dolls that are let go mm. and that are left behind, all these old toys that are there. Mm. And then you have the series of balloons that are yeah. deflated, deflating. I mean, I think there's other paintings in between. I mean, there's the marionettes and then there's the figures. And, you know, the figures really came apart uh, about because I was living in Cornwall, I was living isolated, and I wanted to make larger-scale paintings. And my paintings prior to that point... I was always painting life-size, and this was because I was using a specific technique that I learned in Italy called sight-sizing, where you make the, the object the same size um, as it is in real life because you're standing back at a fixed point um, in order to view the subject and uh, canvas right next to each other. And this is a portraiture technique, so until this point I hadn't really thought about like the increase in size so what happened is when I made the, the canvases bigger I still wanted to make the sight size technique so I then started painting life size figures so when I then came back to um, when I first arrived in New York and I was making the paintings again the first thing that I did was uh, start up and it's not a, a necessarily like a huge um, uh, uh, innovation in painting but I just made uh, the, 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 the I, I started painting toys again but I started increasing the scale and I think once I started playing around with the scale of my paintings I realised that what I was interested in was you know breaking out of the painting format and that's, that was like the kind of beginning of the journey uh, into sculpture and I took away the frames on the paintings I, re I saw them as sculptural entities and then ultimately I just thought well I don't need to be making paintings anymore and that journey kind of wound, uh, wound around and went into like the performative you know, kind of works, etc. Um, and then, uh, ultimately, when I came back to painting again, I made, you know, the, the kind of balloon paintings. And I think they were, like, in, informed by the fact that I was now living in America. I'd been exposed to, like, a very different lifestyle than one living in, you know, the re remote parts of England, not just in terms of, like, kind of palette, um, in terms of the colours, which were, when I was painting the board paintings were very... Um, 
I would say like Spanish because I was really into Spanish painters, Velázquez and Goya and Dara Dara Bera being like you know my favorite um, at the time. But uh, also just the fact that there was a kind of a deep sense of melancholy because of these kind of uh, the, what was affecting me at, at that point. So being an American, more liberated, suddenly I was the icons that had appeared in the earlier work became much more prevalent. So I, I did a whole series of just icons, you know, as helium balloons, as these kind of again like icons of the party, you know, icons of playfulness. So th- those kind of elements never really left, you know. Um, what's funny actually between the the the, the, the British era and the American era is that the the balloons are not as dead and left behind as the other toys before. They're always deflating rather than deflated. They're hanging, there's a shadow, so you know that they're still trying to survive rather than completely gone, yeah. where where I guess if, if you're looking at it from a Freudian point of view, the other ones, the adult is not there, the toys are left behind, the person has moved, learned, and moved on. While with the balloon, the person is still in midst of should let go or shouldn't let go. Well, I think, you know, for me, the, there's a more obvious sense of optimism in the, in the balloon paintings, as you said. Like, the, when my wife would look at the paintings, I would say whether they're deflating, they're sinking, and she's, like, saying, well, actually, for me, that they're, they're hopefully still floating. As in, and actually, if, if you know the, the properties of helium, that they can stay floating for quite a long time, even if a balloon is deflated. You don't need that much helium for something to, to kind of float. They pump them up so they, look, they, they fill the space of the balloon so they have a, a form. So, um, and that's because obviously, well, not obviously, but helium is much lighter than air, you know. So The other thing that kind of goes through your work but isn't as directly uh, obvious as all the play is is your use of words and or language mm. is that a, a discuss <laughs> um i mean words i mean this the, the great irony is that i i use words but i don't read so much I'm, I'm not like a great reader maybe because i have a kind of attention deficit disorder not uh, clinically diagnosed but I, I like to do a lot of things simultaneously, and for me, it's much easier to watch a film than it is to read a book. I, you know, I, I would, I'll look at a, a, a news article, and I'll, I'll, I will not. I can. I find it hard to read it in consequence. I'll kind of pick paragraphs around and then build up um, an understanding of the article, which is incredibly frustrating. So, you know, the irony that I use text in my work um, is, is, is quite strong, but. Uh, so then if you go back to the idea of learning, is that you learning how to manage literary communication? Possibly. I mean, I, there's a sense that I, I'm reducing it to individual words. I, you know, for me, the, the most um, uh, interesting word will be the pun or the palindrome. I was going to say a semordinal lap, which is a palindrome backwards, but um, which is... Uh, a semordinal lap, I think, is a word that has, isn't it one that has, like, two meanings? So when you, but when you read it the different way around, so it could be, let me think if I can think of one. Oh, God <laughs> and dog. Um, whereas a palindrome would be something like never, odd, or even, which is a word, a sentence that you can read both ways the same way if, if you flipped it in a mirror. 
So, uh, and St. Maud in the lap is just a uh, palindrome written backwards in itself. So, you know, I think for me it, it's a, about getting as much from uh, as little as possible. So in a way it's the same with my work that I, I like to, as a sense of playfulness and as a, a sense of simplicity, and I think this simplicity is something that relates to my interest in a painter like de Chirico or a sculptor like Duchamp, you know, where there's this constant sense of, of that there's kind of a joke, but there's a sense of, like, the iconic. You know, de, de Chirico was taking, like, domestic uh, objects, like a, a marigold, like a washing-up glove, and pinning it against a wall, and then having this classical architecture around it. Suddenly you're like, this is great, and um, that there's so much grandeur in this, this simple statement. And I think for me, my use of words, and that influenced these paintings, you know, the fact I was taking an object and putting strong chiaroscuro, light and dark, something I'd learned in Florence, you know, in this kind of Renaissance slash Baroque presentation of something that's uh, quite domestic and throwaway. So I think in a way, but I'd, when I was starting to make uh, text pieces, I was similarly interested in the, the impact you could get from something very simple. So the pun was important and it was always attractive to me because it was both simultaneously amusing and serious. And it was, it, there was a sense of multiple meaning, meanings. So I think with all my work, there's a kind of sense of multiple access. You know, do you approach it from it being funny or do you approach it from being sad? Yeah, exactly. You, it's, it's this satirical marriage of, of hope and melancholy, I guess, yeah. that, that get, gives you this piece. You can either based on, I guess, even every day you look at the piece and then you see it in a, in a certain light. Yeah, I mean, that, that is, I would say, probably to summarize uh, my work, that would be a good way to summarize it, that I'm interested in contrast. You know, I'm interested in what, to me, is real life. Real life, to me, is about the balance of opposites. You know, and this is, uh, this is something that's, uh, again, and not specifically, but... Um, and not specifically or deliberately derived from the Surrealists, but this kind of sense of a harmony of disharmonious elements, which is basically the world we live in. Um, and it's really about, like, how you, you know, when you approach the paintings, it's the same way that when you uh, approach your everyday life. You know, I could be in a bad mood and look at my paintings and be incredibly depressed on by by the imagery that I've used. I could be in a good mood and find it funny and ridiculous yeah. And kind of just, but either way, I find the whole thing completely pointless, which I think is good, because you know life is is ultimately pointless, and we're just trying to like deal with the the the, uh, the kind of futility of it all. <laughs> you know, that's that's all we're doing. We're, at the moment, we're discussing uh, my work. It doesn't really mean anything, apart from it's just someone trying to deal with the fact that they're alive. And that's why everything should be okay, as it says. The show Everything Should Be Okay is um, at Lowry Shabibi uh, Gallery and it's on till the 5th of January 2017. We were just talking to Oliver Clegg. Thank you again for taking your time and talking to us and good luck with the show and the rest of the Emirates. Thank you very much.